We'll start out with, uh, if anybody has any questions, I know we're pressed for time last week and covering the rest of Proverbs, so if anybody wants to bring anything out of that or have a question about something I may have said, that'd be fine to do right now. All right. Seeing none, I see everybody's eager to get into the Song of Solomon, the only song that is a book in the scriptures. So Song of Songs, which is Solomon, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon, which is Solomon's. It's a um, kind of a difficult book. I don't know how many of you have ever sat down and tried to study this, this book. I've done that a couple of times cursorily had somebody request a sermon on it several years ago and never got around to it probably on purpose it's probably one of the most difficult books in the bible to study and to get a grip on um, right up there with with revelation book of romans those types but uh, i think this one might be more difficult than either one of those there's a there's a few different interpretations i'm gonna go into what i'm gonna put forth here i can't possibly Teach all the different interpretations. Don't agree with all the different interpretations, for one thing. Um, <clears throat> the interpretations historically have been allegorical. Now, we all know what an allegory is. All the characters in an allegory would represent something greater than themselves. So the allegorical view that was pre-Jesus, pre-the Christian church, would have been that Solomon in the Song of Solomon represented God and the, the bride, the Shulamite, or the, the, the Shulamith, represented the Jewish people. Um, we don't really take that, that viewpoint. The allegorical view after Jesus came was that it was Christ and she represented the church. Uh, so there was that allegory and there's, there's a lot more that goes into that. I don't have a lot of time to break that down. But uh, it can get quite involved with people who take that particular view that it is an allegory where everything and every part of it represents something spiritual in the Christian church or to do with Christ and the church. The other view, uh, the one that I really take is the historical view, that it's a story about courtship and marriage, which is a very important part of the Christian life. Now, I do take an added view of the whole book saying that it's a typological view, and we'll look at that at the end. Hopefully we'll have time for all of that. There's a couple of other interpretations of the historical view. So we narrow it down to that historical view that it's about um, marriage, basically the marriage relationship. There's a couple of different interpretations there. If you've got the, the workbook that we're kind of going by with this with Robin Sandra Waldron, um, they take the three-person view um, so you have to be a little bit familiar with the song <laughs> as it goes, and we'll, we'll get into this uh, tonight. I, I disagree with the three-person view, so I know that I'm kind of opposing what they say. Um, I've read a lot of different things on that. They're not sold out on it either if you read their, read their workbook. Basically, the, the three-person view would have in view the, the Shulamite, the lady, in the story, or the bride, and she is in love with a shepherd boy in her hometown of Shunem, and Solomon comes and sees her and decides he really likes her, and he takes her for his own, marries her, and in the end, she just keeps resisting, keeps resisting. He gives her back to go back home and be with the shepherd boy. 
or the shepherd man at this point. So I don't see a good reason to think that that's the, the correct view. I take the two-person view that, that the shepherd and Solomon are the same person. Uh, and really, any of these viewpoints, there's, there's going to be things that can be picked apart <laughs> with all of them from what I've been reading. So uh, at any rate, th- these are the two, I guess you would say, the most popular views. And the, the three-person view has kind of come on strong in the last, say, 100 years or so. Uh, but enough of that. I'm, you know, if you, if you want to take the three-person view, I don't really care. It's fine. And, I, you know, I'll keep on taking the two-person view. It really doesn't matter uh, to me. But that's, that's how I'm going to teach tonight, through the two-person view, because I don't know how to teach something I don't really think. So at any rate, let's get into the text. There's three sections in the book, The Song of Solomon. So you have the, the, the first part is the courtship part. And it goes from chapter 1 and verse 2, that's after the introduction, to chapter 3 and verse 5. And you can really see these after we get going. Then there's the wedding, where Solomon sends for her, brings her back. They are wed, and then they have the, um, the honeymoon, so to speak, there in chapter 4. Uh, so chapter 3 and verse 6 through 5 and verse 1 is the wedding. And then there's the marriage. Now there's, there's some conflict resolution in the marriage. About 25% of the book is related to conflict resolution inside a marriage. So it tells you it's a pretty important thing that we need to look at uh, and, and be prepared for if you're, if you're someone who's going to get married because it's, it's going to be there. <laughs> There's going to arise some conflict with your spouse and you better know how to resolve that uh, in a good way. So that goes from chapter 5 and verse 2 through the end of the book. And I'm just going to come around and tell you there's parts of this that still baffle me. There's some things I don't quite understand. Um, But I have never talked to an elder or a preacher who has said, I know everything there is to know about the Song of Solomon. And it all makes perfect sense to me. I don't know if I'll ever hear that. I may run if I do. Because that shows a lot of pride. But nevertheless, so Song of Songs. What is, uh, what is meant by the term Song of Songs, which is Solomon's? Solomon wrote a lot of songs, didn't he? Remember 1 Kings 4 and verse 32? How many songs did Solomon write? A thousand and five songs. He was pretty prolific at songwriting. This is the one that has survived. And it's labeled as the Song of Songs. It's a superlative. That's what that means, or that's what is going on here with this name. It's kind of like saying the King of Kings. Jesus is King of Kings. He's King over every king. Lord of Lords, Lord over every Lord. The Holy of Holies in the temple or the tabernacle. Basically, how do we represent that? We say the most holy place many times. This is saying this is the very best song of all. So there's something wonderful about it. We just got to kind of figure out what it is. Second thing I want to bring out about this song of songs is the fact that it's a song. It's not a story, nevertheless. There's there's storyline attributes to it. But you don't know of many songs that you can go and read it historically and everything's going to line up, everything's going to make sense, like someone's writing down a history, you know? It's, it's more poetic than that. It's sort of maybe a cross between 
possibly a historical account, but also a poetic account of something. That may affect its interpretation, right? Something being a song. It may or may not be 100% historical. This could be completely made up, right, by Solomon, and it's a really good story, and we can learn a lot from it. It could be that this is a record of him marrying someone and what he learned from it or remembers from it. The songs are often created for a grander purpose of storytelling, something we need to consider. We can't know all there is to know about that, however. So let's think about that, and let's get into the text. I don't want us to run out of time, taking up enough time on that. Chapter 1 and verse 2, it starts off right away. Here's the courtship part, okay? So we're going to, I don't have any more PowerPoints, so you can just get out your scriptures and look along with me. The courtship, chapter 1 and verse 2 through chapter 3 and verse 5. We start off with a Shulamite and her confession of love towards someone. We're not introduced them to them yet. Let me let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. So she's, she's coming, uh, she's starting off. She seems to know Solomon. That's who I'm going to take this man to be. And she fantasizes about the future. What are things going to be like with him. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let him do all of these things. She dreams of physical affection, the kissing. She thinks of his scent, right? She contemplates also his character. That's an important thing, right? Look at verse, uh, verse 3. Your name is ointment poured forth. She's interested in the character of him. That's what this word, this name represents. What is he all about? Well, your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Now, <coughs> pardon me, she desires for him, however, to initiate things. She's dreaming about what the future is going to be, but she desires for him to initiate things. Look at chapter uh, 1 and verse 4, draw me away. She wants him to take the lead in things. Then we have another set of characters introduced here. The daughters of Jerusalem. Well, who are they? Well, I believe them to be the, el the eligible young women in Jerusalem. They're all interested in Solomon. They're smitten by Solomon. Look at what they say. We will run after you. The king has, uh, or we will run after you. That's all they say there in chapter 1 and verse 4. Now we get to introduce to her a little bit more. We get to know a little bit more about her background. Who is she who wants Solomon, right? Verse 5. Verse 5. She's very self-conscious about herself. She's very self-conscious. The ladies say, rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So she's very self-conscious about her looks. She's, she's tanned. It says like the tents of Kedar. Kedar is 
Saudi Arabia. And if you go over there now, you can see the tents that are made by the Bedouins that are there. They make them out of black goat's hair. They're very dark. She says, that's, that's my skin. She's been out and having to work in the vineyards, being made to do that. Where there is no shade, and she's gotten darker and darker. Now, we think that's a, a good thing to us. We like, like it when people have a, have a tan or when we have a little bit of a tan. People are like, you look good with a tan. But they didn't necessarily think that back then. That was more for someone who had to work outside. You were having to work, work a difficult job. And being more pale meant that you had a more affluent life. So she's admitting that she's had a rough life so far and her skin is dark she said my brothers made me keep the vineyard right but my own vineyard i have not kept now this this uh vineyard is going to be referenced again you want to turn over in chapter 8 and uh hopefully we can get that far chapter 8 and verse 11 as the shulamite is closing out her words here the end of the chapter is verse 14, but chapter 8 and verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring its fruit uh, for its fruit, a thousand silver coins. So there, there's that reference to this vineyard maybe that she was working in that uh, they were leasing from Solomon. So, <clears throat> excuse me. But she goes on to say, my own vineyard, I have not kept. What does that mean? Anybody? She's looking at herself. She's, she's already self-deprecating, right? My skin is dark. I've had to work hard. I've kept the vineyard the whole time, but not myself. I've neglected my own looks and my own, my own body, my own face, hair, all of those things that go along, uh, along with that. So she hasn't been able to tend, tend to her own vineyard uh, which is her own appearance or body. Back over in chapter 8 and verse 12 is a place where we can get that reference as well. When she's going to say to Solomon there, my own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend it, its fruit, two hundred. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen to your voice, let me hear it. She references there again her, her own vineyard, which would be her own body. So think about that. Look at verse 7 as we make our way through. She's talking about her beloved or to, to him. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Then the beloved, that's going to be the shepherd, which is, I believe, Solomon as well. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. So they plan a meetup there, verse 7 and verse 8. Now we're getting into this language where they delight in one another. Remember, we're in this period of courtship. And he goes through some, some descriptions of her that maybe we, don't, we wouldn't use. We would say, this guy needs some, he needs some help in, in how to woo a woman. He's comparing her first to a horse, right? 
Isn't that what he says, verse 7? Or verse, uh, sorry, verse, uh, verse 9. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Is that a crazy way to, to describe her? Well, not to Solomon. Solomon was a purveyor of fine horses. You can read that multiple places in Scripture. He was the one that had either 4,000 stalls for horses or 40,000, depending on how many it was, and there may have been a, a scribal error in that. But he bought horses from Egypt and, and sold them. He was really appreciative of the beauty and the grandeur of the horse and compares her to that. It's a, it's a good thing. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, verse 10, your neck with chains of gold. He's just appreciating her beauty. The jewelry enhances her appearance. Then in, in verse 12 through 14, they talk about the smells that one another has. Verse 12 says, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. So he appreciates the way she smells and she's trying to smell good, he's trying to smell good. We have to remember, the, these smells are important. They are tenders of animals at this particular time. They don't have the, the facilities like we have to go in and shower and all that at the drop of a hat. So these things would be important to cover up the smell of, of animals uh, that they would have been around. They're also drawn to one another's appearance. Look at verse 15. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair, the king says. You have dove's eyes. So he's compared it to a horse, now doves. I'm not sure exactly what the dove's eyes would be. It's kind of like this, what I understand, this nice shape, this soft look. But also a dove has an intent look towards one thing is uh, what I've read about that. She says in verse 16, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant also. Our bed is green. The beams of our house is, house is cedar. Our rafters are fir. So they've had their meet up. They're spending some time. It sounds like a picnic. Their bed is green. That's the grass rafters and walls, fir trees. They're out in nature and enjoying one another. There's not a hint here of them meeting up for some explicit sexual encounter. It's just them getting to know one another and enjoying what is going on between them, getting to do that. Their relationship in chapter two and verse one, it's, it seems like before this, it's been kind of private. Remember, I don't want to walk around and, and uh, why should I walk around the tents trying to find out where you are? Tell me where you're going to be. But now it's going to be made more public. Does anybody have any thoughts or points so far? I don't know a better way to go through this than, than what we're doing at the time. But chapter 2 and verse 1, is, they go public, so, so to speak, with the, the relationship. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. I didn't mention there's a lot of a lot of statements in the Song of Solomon that we have in our hymnals. And you'll notice that as we go through there. Now, at first here, chapter 2 and verse 1, 
She self-deprecates. I know it may not sound that way to you, but I am a rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. She's not putting herself up on a pedestal here by saying that. If you look at, at where she's from, Rose of Sharon grew with a bunch of other roses of Sharon. It's like a meadow flower. So she's, I'm one flower among many. A lily of the valleys. The lilies just grew in bunches. I'm a lily of the valley, just one. Now, look at the way Solomon describes her after she's what I would call self-deprecated herself. He says in verse 2, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. So he's, he's putting her forth as, you're, yeah, you're a lily, but everything around you looks like thorns to me. So he's raising her up uh, in her own eyes and in his eyes as well as something that there's not a lot of. Of course, he stands out to her, verse 3, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Then she goes on, verse 4, one of the, one of the more famous statements. We already had a lily of the valleys, rose of Sharon. Now verse 4, he brought me to his banqueting house. We don't know if that's in Jerusalem or if Solomon had another house that's up near the Jezreel Valley where this, this uh, town of Shunem would have been. But she said, his banner over me was love. That's why I say they're going public now. What is a banner? The banner over me is love. What does that even mean? Well, a banner is a marker. It's a flag. It's some kind of a public declaration. His public declaration over me is love, his love for me. He is saying, this is mine to everyone around. She belongs to me now. And he's declaring his love for her. Chapter, five, or ch chapter 2 and verse 5 and 6 we'll read, Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand under, is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. That's a kind of a weird statement. Seems out of place, but you'll notice as we read through, it's said three times in the book. It's said here, chapter 2 and verse 7. It's also said in chapter 3 and verse 5. Remember, that's right before the marriage takes place. It's also said at the end of the book, in chapter 8 and verse 4. What is, it, what is it meant here? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Some questions we could ask here. Till it pleases who? Is it pleases them? It pleases God? I take that it, till it pleases God. Until the time is right is the way that some versions put it there. It's almost like this is put in, the, put in place by the writer as, I don't know what you'd call it, I guess breaking the fourth wall, someone outside of the play that's going on that looks in and gives direction to everyone. Don't awaken love before it's time. We're seeing love here awakened, but it has its proper time. It has its proper place and the proper method and all those things. It's good in the right context, isn't it? Love is. Just like a lot of things. Just like fire. We just went through an ice storm and 
A lot of us may have had fireplaces. We keep warm by the fireplace. And that's a great place for it. But it's not a great place to have fire on your kitchen floor or in your bathroom. It's completely out of place. And that's what this warning is kind of telling us. Don't awaken love at the wrong time. Wait until it is pleasing. And I take that to be pleasing to God. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Not a lot of thoughts out there tonight. But if you have one, just interrupt me. I'll be happy to give you the floor for a minute. So now we get into chapter, get up to where I was. Chapter 2 and verse 8. Now, so we've gotten the, we're in the midst of the courting. And it seems like what we're about to read, it seems like some time has passed. Maybe a winter season has passed. And the, the, the groom, who's going to be the groom, has come back. Let's read a few verses and see if you get that as well. The Shulamite says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. Seems like she's looking for him everywhere. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth our green figs, and the vines of the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And then, I don't know what your versions may say there, but uh, some have headings, and mine says the brothers are saying this. I don't know if that's original to the, to the psalm. It says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. I, I believe that's more Solomon speaking. Let's deal with little problems we may have. I know we have, you have to learn how to do that while you're... While you're dating, which is what we do, they're courting here. So think about those things. Uh, so he returns after an absence, and the time sp- that they're going to spend together is to potential relationship problems. It's going to be the antidote to that, spending some time together. And uh, so. 16 and 17, my beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. So, Now in chapter 3, we're still in that period of, of courtship. And we see here uh, another part of the song. It seems like she is fearing of losing him. Um, Verse 1 through 4, by night on my bed, I sought the one I love. By night on my bed. It sounds like she is dreaming. She's asleep, but she's dreaming. I sought him, but did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city. In the streets and in the squares, I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely. Had I passed by them, when I found the one I love, I held him and would not let him go until I had 
brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. This, this scenario is going to come back up again in chapter 5, starting in verse 2, and go for several verses there, where she dreams again and goes out to try to find him, this time after it appears an argument between them. So we have the warning again, chapter 3 and verse 5, like we had had before, remember? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. As I said, there's still some parts that I don't, don't understand. I don't understand adjuring someone by the does and gazelles of the field, what that has to do with a promise not to awaken love before the time. But I'm sure that there's some, some meaning to it. So that's, that ends the first part. The, the courtship. Now, chapter 3 and verse 6, we start the wedding, the wedding, or the period of the wedding. Chapter 3 and verse 6, she says, Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? So she sees something in the distance coming up the road and it's throwing up pillars of smoke, dust, it would look like, uh, sound like to me. And she says, behold, it is Solomon's couch with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. Some of the, the versions there say it's the litter of Solomon means his couch throne that's mobile that he is carried around in. He has bodyguards there, 60 valiant men. Now, why are they with, with him? or coming to pick her up. She says they are of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Anytime you take a journey at this, in this particular day and time, you're in danger of getting robbed, right? And possibly harmed in some way. So there's 60 valiant men to protect her on the way back to be with Solomon. Now, verse 9, of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. Anybody knows what a palanquin is? Look that one up. It's a carriage. He had made himself a carriage. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So, you get the idea, he's, he's finally arrived and this carriage is in front of her and she's sort of checking it out, kind of like a, maybe a, you would check out a limo or something that was sent to pick you up. And this is really, really nice thing that he has made for her to come back. Verse 11 says, Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. So that ends that part. So she's checked things out. She's come back to Solomon. It sounds like the, the marriage or the, the wedding is taking place or has taken place. And we get into chapter 4, and chapter 4 can only be described really as the honeymoon. They went through the, the, the wedding ceremony, and that time has come about where you're after, after the wedding ceremony. In chapter 4 and verse 1, they begin to... He, he starts extolling her beauty. 
and is captivated by it. He starts, I want us to notice, he starts at her eyes and works his way down, slowly describing her. He says, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. What color is her hair, by the way? Remember the goats that made the tents of Kedar? Black goats, her hair is black. It's going to be later described, I believe chapter 7 or chapter 8, as being purple. What happens to jet black hair when it hits the light just right? It's going to have that sheen of like maybe a blue-purple hue. So she has jet black hair, it sounds like. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing. Some of these metaphors that he uses are, are very strange to us, but we, we've heard these things before. Sheep are kind of dirty, right? But what do they look like after they're shorn? It peels back and it's complete white. It says these sheep have been down and shorn and washed, so they're completely white. He goes on to keep describing her teeth, every one which bears twins, and none is barren among them. So she has all her teeth. Her teeth are beautiful. She has jet black hair. He describes her lips, verse 3. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet. Take that to mean just talking about the color of them. And your mouth is lovely. Maybe speaking of the, the shape of it, maybe the words that are spoken by it as well. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Like I said, some things are just kind of strange. I take it he's trying to describe her neck as long and beautiful. And then in chapter 4 and verse 5, he moves down and talks about her breasts. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. So that talks about the, the shape and things like that of her. So he has a lot of, he's very smitten over his new bride and has a lot of anticipation. Chapter 4 and verse 6 through the end of the chapter kind of speaks to that anticipation he has. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Sinir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse, you have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your fragr the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with fresh fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense and myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. You can 
can just feel the anticipation that he's speaking with as he speaks so tenderly to her. Verse 16, she responds, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And then he says, I have come, in, come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Now, so that's the consummation of the marriage. We have chapter 5 and verse 1 in the second part of that. We're not told who's speaking here. It seems a little bit out of place. Um, my New King James has a thing that says, to his friends. But it says, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. We're not told, as I said, who's speaking here. Wow, that went by so fast. This is the last class. Um, so I'm not going to deal with that right now. Now we get to chapter 5 and verse 2. And as I said, there's, there's conflict and resolution there in the rest of the chapter or the rest of the book. The little foxes that spoil the grapes. Look at what it says here in verse 2. This is, she says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Now listen to her response. You think, well, she's going to open to him. Look at what all we've been viewing so far. But she says, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. It sounds like they've had some sort of an argument or something is going on where that she really she wants to see him, but she doesn't want to see him. She don't want to make it that easy. He's ready to come in. Hey, baby, open up the door. She's not having any of it. So... She goes to the door, and he's gone already. And she goes and searches for him through the city. There's some strange things that happen there. It seems like the watchmen of the city catch her and think she's somebody else and assault her in some way. And then she goes and actually finds him with the help of everyone else in the city. So, or not everyone else, but some of the young maids of the city. So you have this conflict resolution that's there that we need to be aware of. Um, she describes him to the others uh, in chapter 5 and verse 10 through chapter 6 and verse 1 as radiant and ruddy. His head is golden with black wavy locks. He has dove's eyes. He's, he has uh, beautiful cheeks, beautiful lips. His arms are rods of gold with jewels. He's not the only one that can describe someone in the way that, that he's doing. In chapter 6 and verse 2 through 13 is when they come back together and you have the, the makeup uh, between them. I invite you to read that, uh, we don't have time right now. So that's, that goes on. We are quite out of time. I apologize for not going faster. I don't really know how to go faster with that. The last verse of the, of the song says, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. I said I don't take the, the um, view that it you know, represents Jesus and the church or anything like that. It's not an allegory. But I do think there's a corollary just because these things are true, that something that we look at it and we get a snapshot of something 
I ran across this, this uh, quote by a man named H.A. Ironside. Many of you may have read his commentaries in the past, but I'll just read it. And this is, he sums up the book very beautifully. He says, King Solomon had a vineyard in the hill country of Ephraim, 50 miles north of Jerusalem. He lent it out to keepers, consisting of a mother, two sons, and a daughter, the Shulamite. The daughter was a Cinderella of the family, naturally beautiful but unnoticed. Her brothers were likely half-brothers. They made her work very hard tending the vineyard so that she had little opportunity to care for her personal appearance. She pruned the vines and set traps for the little foxes. She also kept the flocks. Being out in the open so much, she had a deep tan. One day, a handsome stranger came to the vineyard. It was Solomon in disguise. He showed an interest in her, and she became embarrassed concerning her personal appearance. She took him for a shepherd and asked about his flocks. He answered evasively, but also spoke loving words to her and promised rich gifts for the future. He won her heart and left with the promise that one day he would return. She dreamed of him at night and sometimes thought he was near. Finally, he did return in all his kingly splendor to make her his bride. He says, this prefigures Christ who came first as a shepherd and won his bride, and later he will return as king, and then we will be consummated the marriage of the Lamb. So maybe there's something there in that that makes sense or strikes a chord with us. Thank you for your attention and for being so uh, encouraging to me during this class. I appreciate it very much.